Welcome to the Guide Sessions, a podcast where we talk about stories of adventure as told by the guides who experienced them. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Jim Aiken. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your support. If you like what you hear, feel free to rate and subscribe. Before we get into the episode, I want to take a minute to talk about the Guide Sessions Consulting and Media Services. That's right. The Guide Sessions is not just a podcast anymore. The Guide Sessions is now the gateway to your next adventure. So please, contact me. Let me help you chase your dream. Additionally, the Guide Sessions Media provides a wide variety of photography and videography services. So head on over to the website, theguidesessions.com, for all the details. And while you're there, be sure to sign up to be notified of any cancellation hunts or trips to save some money on your next adventure. What is up, everybody? Wouldn't you know it, just like that, it's March. You know, I saw my first Robin the other day, and to me, that only means one thing. Turkey season is coming. So if you've never turkey hunted, I highly suggest you give it a shot. So unless you actually live in Alaska, I can guarantee you there are turkeys in your state because they call it chasing the 49 for a reason. So order that new diaphragm call, chalk up your box calls, rough up those glass calls, rough up those slate calls, because opening day, it's coming. And it's going to be here before we all know it. And if you're a newbie and don't even know where to start and you're saying, what's a diaphragm call? What's a box call? What's a glass call? Go ahead. Shoot me a message on Instagram at the guide sessions or shoot me an email at Jim at the guide sessions.com. And I'll help you out. I'm not a professional caller in any way, shape or form, but I love helping people. So if you have any questions, reach on out. I'll do my best to point you in the right direction when it comes to, to at least calling turkeys and making some kind of a sound that uh, sounds like a turkey at least because you know what? They say even a real hen doesn't win a calling contest. So you can go out, make a sound, and call on that bird. Anyway, we're not going to be talking turkeys on this episode. We're actually going to be talking with Rob Taylor of Boulder Creek Outfitters. And here's the interesting thing about Rob is that he is brand new to this guiding industry so new that it was last summer he attended the uh, guide school over at Royal Tyne. And the day after he graduated, he was picked up by Boulder Creek Outfitters and has just jumped right into the whole guide industry. So we're going to cover everything that he learned over at the Royal Tyne Guide School, as well as all the little things that he used from the school to make his first season as a guide with uh, Boulder Creek a very successful season that he had. So we're talking about everything he learned from the pack strategies of dealing with stock because he's never had to deal with horses or mules uh, ever in his life. So it was a great learning curve there, really shortened things for him, as well as calling elk and the different strategies on how to scout for elk and how to hunt elk, all the way to bear tactics and whitetail tactics. And he had such a, a cool story about his, uh, he doubled up, I was the last clients of the year for some whitetail. So stay tuned for that story. 
as well as covering some tactics that he had just overall. Um, and he, he's already obviously just starting out. He's already learned some lessons. He's going to go over those lessons that he's learned and how he's going to apply and fix them for this coming season, as well as, you know, he's just hungry for knowledge. And it's cool that he is so open to learning, so open to making mistakes, because that's really the best way to learn is through mistakes. And his whole idealistic mind of just chasing dreams and going for it is so admirable to hear from somebody at his age, just hopefully that they can spread the word. If somebody's on the fence of thinking about becoming a guide, doesn't matter if you're young like Robert or old like me, you can still do it. You can be a guide. You can have stories to sell, stories to tell, stories to share. It's a great thing to have, as well as the cool thing I even learned about in, in the uh, in the conversation was the guide school. Even though I've guided for years, I kind of want to go to the guide school because I can. I, there's probably stuff there that I know I'm going to learn and can do better. You know, to each his own. Some people don't like guide school. Some people do. But anyway, this is a heck of a conversation with one of the up and comers. It's Rob Taylor, talk with me on the Guide Sessions podcast. All right, we are live, and today on the show, we've got Rob Taylor, who I met down at the North American Great Outdoor Show down in Harrisburg. Rob actually just wrapped up his first year out west and is heading back out pretty soon for the spring bear season. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So you're another fellow Pennsylvanian. Uh, you headed out west to guy big game. So really, like, what gave you that idea to do that? Like, I mean, because you're young. What you're 22? You said. Yeah, 22, going on 23. Yeah, perfect age to do this stuff. Don't want to. You know, you can still do it like oh, an yeah. old man like me, but being young <laughs> makes it easier. I'll tell you that. Oh yeah, but how I kind of got into it was more or less. Uh, I. I've been hunting and fishing since a very young age. I, I started hunting when I was seven years old uh, through the mentor youth program in Pennsylvania and then continued hunting all the way up through. My dad always made sure every year that we had a set um, a set week that we were going for deer season to make sure we got our rifle season. And, and from that young age on, it always touched me, the outdoors, and I always knew that I wanted to work in the outdoor industry. I just wasn't sure what route I wanted to take in the outdoor industry. And I also, from a young age, I wanted to go out west. I can remember playing, there was a computer game that I would play on desktop where you could hunt antelope, mule deer, bison, I mean, pretty much whatever you wanted to. And it was almost like, uh, I'm trying to think, like the Cabela's, like Wii games type stuff, but mm -hmm. it was on desktop. I still can't find this game to this day. But that always made, like, seeing the graphics in that game as to, like, the west in general always drew me to it from a young age i always liked like the frontier side of things which was kind of weird i right. wanted to go out west and visit it to see it for myself mm -hmm. and i knew that the big game hunting would come along with that if i was to go out west so i i got out of high school i started working at my local domino's pizza because i wasn't sure what i was going to do i was planning on going to indiana university of pennsylvania to take a uh a course in wildlife i call wildlife ecology uh biology and uh conservation and instead i ended up not going to college and i just stayed home worked at domino's for three years from 18 to 21 and kind of realized that i was running in circles for a little bit 
Yeah. So yeah, the career path just, of a longtime Domino's delivery guy. You know, oh yeah, go so far. Well, the thing was, is when I was at Domino's, I'd walk up to a door, knock on the door, and they'd open the door. And if they had mounts on the walls, that was a, I mean, right there was an icebreaker, and we'd immediately start talking. I had guys from down the road offer to take me seek a deer hunting in Maryland. I mean, I still had the outdoor connections through an industry like Domino's. Like I would mm-hmm. still be taught at least. It was still on my heart. I knew that for the biggest thing. So I got to 21 and I had a conversation with, we own land upstate uh, near Mansfield, Pennsylvania. And it's kind of a a group of people that have all been very close in it through the years. My dad's been up there for almost 40 years. And uh, there was a guy who passed away last year who I had talked to in 2021, who kind of set me on the path that I was on. He asked me straight up and down, uh, his name was uh, Jeff, and I can't remember his last name for the life of me. Because, but we uh, we had a talk. Jeff was eighty one, and we sat there shooting the bull for a little bit, just as to what I was doing in life. He knew I was working at Domino's, and he told me he was like, "That doesn't seem like something you would be interested in doing." He was, "What are you interested in doing?" And at that time, I had looked into guide schools, but I hadn't really pulled the trigger on a guide school or even said like, ah, that's what I'm going to do. And I mentioned it to him. I was like, well, I've been looking at guide schools a little bit out West. And he goes, really? And he goes, you want to be a hunting guide? And I said, I think I do. I don't, I don't know, but I think I, I've been looking through it and it seems like it would be the job that I want to go through with. And he goes, I could see you as a hunting guide. And I was like, okay, Jeff. And he goes, I think you should actually go for it. And at least give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, come back and do something else, but give it a shot. Yeah. So I started further researching on guide schools, found Royal Tyne Guide School in Montana, and then pulled the trigger. I got a job at a different plate at Ace uh, Ace Hardware Warehouse in uh, Fredericksburg and worked there for about eight months and then started work or at least went right out to Montana then and started learning how to be a hunting guide. Cool. I mean, it's it's funny how sometimes just like that little bit of confidence you can get from some that you confide into somebody else can just give you that little bit to get you over the hump to say, yeah, let's go do this. I can do this. And you just went for it. Mm-hmm. It yeah. kind of more or less lit a fire under me because I I wanted to be a game commission officer. That okay. was the career that I wanted to pursue. And being a game warden my biggest thing is i i realized at about 20 years old that i did not want to be the person that patrols the woods looking for hunters i wanted to be the person that was in the woods taking hunters the safe way and the right way Mm -hmm. to do what they came to do and that's to harvest the harvest and to do it the right way yeah so it was more or less like i just kind of made that decision when i didn't go to college i was like i'm not going to go the game warden route i'm going to try and find another way to where I want to get to. So, but yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. A lot of people who want to be in the outdoor industry and like, yeah, I'm a big hunter, big fisherman. I'm going to be a game warden, but like what they don't realize, you know, my uncle's a game warden for years and what they don't realize is how little you actually hunt and how little you actually fish because during those seasons you're out there patrolling, mm-hmm. you know, no granted. Yeah. You've got, you may have time off here and there to go, you know, hunt and fish but like you're not going to get as much hunting and fishing time off because your job is to patrol you know and make sure you're on call 
you're on call 24 7 yeah that's the biggest thing for a game warden. and mm. when i found that out during deer season and pretty much any season that there's a big game animal, a big game animal ready to be harvested you are on call 24 7 they could call you at midnight and tell you you need to go out and check a deer a gut pile right and my thought to that was i just yeah i don't want to be the person patrolling the woods mm-hmm. yeah so really what what made you like lean towards like guide school and not just con kind of like contact and a bunch of outfitters see who wants to hire like what made you go that guide school route so i did read a lot about it the biggest thing was i was just trying to read to find out from actual guides like what because i know people who have been born out west they've been hunting those big game animals their entire life they've been hunting elk pronghorn the black bear that live out there uh mule deer and it's all different from the hunting here so my thought was i know hunting is hunting if you know how to hunt it's just switching the animals back and forth pretty much there's different styles and different ways you can do each one but hunting is hunting but my other thought was i knew that i would have to learn packing with mules and getting the firsthand experience of going through a guide school versus i mean an outfitter would have given me i'm guessing they would have given me a job i just didn't i'm look into it i more or less mm-hmm. just went straight for the guide school but uh i know a lot of outfitters are looking for work and if you apply with an outfitter they if you put in the time to work for them they will put in the time to train you correctly and i've been told that by many people the other way around it is going to guide school and the i mean to me hell it was almost like boot camp if i could compare it to anything <laughs> they they very much so want to drill that stuff into your head we did cold shoeing uh we did we like did quite a bit of cold shoeing they had to shoe a couple horses we did two weeks of packing they made sure you were in good hiking shape they made sure you understood the different situations of elk hunting uh when like the different bull situations where you can have a bedded bull versus a a circling bull versus a bull that's backing away like what to do in each situation mm-hmm. and me personally and quite a few of the guys there the reason that we all went to guide school was because us ourselves had never seen a wild elk and going into an industry to hunt wild elk having not even seen a wild elk to me it was just like i need this form of training to be able to put myself in a position that i can succeed rather than try and figure it out with an outfitter and yes they'll teach me but at the same time i don't know what they'll teach me and Mm -hmm. they might not give me the same amount of time to teach as an instructor would where you're paying them for a month and then you go right into the industry right yeah and there's definitely advantages you know either direction but yeah definitely the advantage i would see for the guide school end is definitely it kind of like shortens your learning curve or actually maybe not shortens, but concentrates your learning curve exactly what you're saying about how you can focus on you know so many things about different scenarios where mm-hmm. you can actually learn about the scenario where with me i didn't go to guide school or i went out and just got lucky with an outfitter where i was kind of mm-hmm. learning on the fly if i had those first two years back with the knowledge that I had now that it was more, more concentrative experience probably would have been a lot more successful for me or a lot more, you know, just overall better. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that having that, that month of time dedicated and having that resource of a teacher, you know, to constantly answer questions and have that experience, I can definitely see there's an advantage for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just more or less helped because we had both of the instructors that I had, it was, uh, uh, one is named Bird, and the other one was uh, Cody Henson. 
And Cody Henson is the outfitter for Royal Tyne Outfitters. He runs his own outfit mm -hmm. in the offseason. He just does the guide school through – or not the offseason. In the season, he just does the guide school through the offseason months in uh, May, June, May, June, and August. And uh, I guess the biggest thing is, like, he puts you in situations that are situations you're really going to be in. Because, like, when I went from guide school to Boulder Creek, I mean, the same day I graduated – one of the kids who lived in Genesee, Idaho named Ian, he, he drove me right to Boulder Creek and dropped me off. And I started working the next day. But, uh, I kind of wanted to back up a little bit. Like when you're heading out to guide school, like, did you have like any big fears about like from being from Pennsylvania? Like you're saying, never seen an elk, never heard an elk kind of deal. Like, did you have any big fears? You know, uh, I, I was nervous. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. If I was being honest, like I didn't, I read everything on the website. I watched all the videos. I watched I watched what I was going to be doing, but I didn't know for sure until I got there if I was going to like if this was going to be something for me. And then from day 1, I mean, it was for me. And how I got there, it was I I mean, I flew in and then got picked up, but everybody else around the around the country drove in, which was very weird. Like I was the only person <laughs> yeah, that flew like in. And then being there and being able to go out and experience everything without having a car, which was really nice too. But yeah, getting there, I just, I truthfully had no idea what was going to go on. They gave us uh, a list and not knowing how to elk hunt, they told us before you get to school, you need to know how to bugle. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> I bugle, man. And I thought I was going to have to use a diaphragm call. They uh, really don't care what calls you use as long as you can make a noise that sounds like a bugle. Mm -hmm. And I used, I mean, the Phelps, I used a cheater call, the Phelps game calls uh, Easy Bugler. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, you can rip a bugle off of that and you can go a couple different tones once mm -hmm. you get decent with it. But just for a starter, it really helps out. And all the guys out there, like I had a guy from West Virginia. No, there was one guy from Idaho. Pretty much everybody out there, a lot of them did not have elk in their state. So they were all there for the same reason I was, was mm. to really learn uh, about the animals of the area and learn more than what they could learn in their home state. Because right. watching it. Watching a TV screen, like, I mean, everybody there watches Meat Eater, and we all agreed. We're like, we you don't really learn much about guiding from watching an episode of Meat Eater where they're hunting bull elk in Montana. Like, right. you can learn stuff about hunting the animal, yes, but mm -hmm. about guiding for it, not too much. Like, what are some so, of those things, in your opinion, since you brought up that difference? We can talk about that now. Like, like what we're Hunting some... for the... Yeah. They, sh they show, in Meat Eater to me, they show much more of the do-it-yourself perspective of hunting versus like when the guided perspective like when you have a guide and you're putting your trust in that person to find the animal that you are paying for you can't really i'm trying to think how to word this a do-it-yourself is much more on you you as the person right mm -hmm. but when you're with a guide you're not relying on yourself anymore you're relying on that guide and a guide watching meat eater to me, you can learn about the hunting style, but when it comes to, I guess the, I'm trying to think how to word this. When it comes to actually like the, the people person type stuff, like the when it comes the, to actually, the, yeah, the yeah. person, yeah. 
yeah person to person mm-hmm. that's not really shown as much in that show i feel just because it's not they're not being guided like it's not a guy talking to a client it's steven ranella who in himself could be a guide if he mm-hmm. wanted to he's good he's good enough in hunting to be a guide right um and to take other people out and he has guided other people to get them their first animals but to me it's more just a do-it-yourself versus person to person like it's just one perspective versus another for me to i don't really watch many videos when it comes to like i'll watch videos of people bugling in elk but other than that i try and stay out of like all of the hunting videos stuff Mm -hmm. like everybody everybody has their own way to hunt that's just the biggest thing and that's another thing that Meat Eater does express, too, is everybody has their own way to hunt, and there isn't a specific way you have to hunt something. Right. Yeah, there's definitely so. more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to the guiding, hunting, no matter what you're doing. Oh, but yeah. I, I get what you're saying 100%. Like, with uh, the difference between guiding and hunting, you know, with the with the guiding, yeah, your hunter has to put their faith in you, number one. But then also you have to provide some kind, as a guide, some kind of entertainment factor to make sure that they're enjoying having a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, because... You know, in my experience, even though like the the hunter somewhat kind of still wants to be involved in the hunt, so you can't just completely exclude them and push them aside. Mm-hmm. You, know, you got to include them a little bit to make them feel like they are part of the hunt and not just you know, a dog on a leash kind of deal. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I like to uh, the biggest things that I like to do with my hunters is we'll go around and like bring up the natural history of the area, the flora and fauna, like being able to discuss stuff like that. Like uh, we have the old man's beard out west yeah. which is i mean fire starter mm-hmm. i love honestly being able to walk up to with uh one of my clients and going hey do you see that green stuff on that tree oh yeah yeah well just so you know that's probably one of the best fire starters you ever find in the woods and they look at you sideways for a second and then like you tell them a couple other things about stuff and then it's just it like you said it's providing entertainment it's it's making sure that they have a good time while you're also having a good time so and I was told by Jim Shockey, like I went to uh, LCBC last year, uh, Lives Changed by Christ Church in Mannheim Township. And they had a uh, a sportsman show where Jim Shockey came and he oh, spoke. Sweet. And I got the opportunity at the end to ask him a question. And I really, really wanted to. He was standing on the stage and I got up, shook my hand. And he goes, what's your question? I was like, so I'm going to be going to guide school in Montana and learning how to become a hunting guide and he goes okay and i said i i was just curious to know what were your two biggest challenges when you joined the industry and got into it and how did you overcome them and he said the first he said the first challenge or not the first well the first challenge i guess the first thing to know is uh you need to know your territory like the back of your hand otherwise you may as well not even be hunting it and he told me that and i was like well, that makes sense. And at that point, I didn't even know where I was going to be going, much less if I was going to have a guiding job in the fall. So I'm thinking <laughs> if I start guiding in the fall, I already have that one. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do that. Know my territory right. already. And then the second one is uh, he said, you need to understand that you're having an experience. Yeah, you're having an experience while hunting. You're not hunting while having an experience. So the biggest thing was not putting hunting to the forefront of everything everything yes you are hunting but at the same time you're having an experience and you need to focus on that and that's where it comes to making sure that the clients are having a good time and to do anything you can to lift their spirits if you're not seeing elk you can't do much about that you you can try as hard as you can to find the elk but if you can't find them you can't find them 
much more it's much more interesting to introduce them to say you were to find a native american artifact in the middle of the wilderness and you can explain what tribe lived there before mm -hmm. or you can explain the different animals how they act and if you see a whitetail coming across versus a mule deer up high you can explain the difference between those two or it's it's just kind of interesting to go out and be able to talk to people who they're out there to learn just as much as you have to offer them and if you have nothing to offer them that is on you as a guide that's not on the and if they're having a terrible time because you don't have anything to offer them yeah it, it rests on yeah, you just like you said it, it's it's on the guide for sure to have that little bit of entertainment factor and that's and that's really a big thing to understand for most guides that need to wrap around their head is like you're saying and Tim Shockey said it best you know that you you're providing an experience first and the 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 hunt and the kill is is second you know that's that's like the bonus as long as as long mm -hmm. as I've had some of like the best hunting experiences with people who I've shown them a wonderful time missed it. They missed a couple shots. They didn't, they didn't come home with anything, but they still had the best time that they ever had hunting simply because of what, what I gave them throughout the entire week we were there. Now, granted, I can't control that he shot and missed a couple times. I can't control that he shot with the safety on as the bull was walking away. Like I can't control that, yeah. but I can control everything else that in the situations that even though, there was missed opportunities. I didn't let my hunter get down. I kept them positive. Just kind of like, all right, man, all right, we're just going to find another one, you know, kind yep. of deal. And, and that's what Next we did. Next mindset. Right. I definitely can second and, and agree with what you're saying about learn the area, figure out some cool natural history stuff. It could just be like where, where I hunt. There's a lot of logging history. So it was a lot of like logging stuff that I, I kind of researched about a uh, mm -hmm. little bit about, not so much the Indian stuff, but that's still, it always interests me, but I never researched it. So yeah. again, that's on me. <laughs> and it, it truly does go a long way with clients. I mean, we had a pair uh, come in for our archery wilderness camp that as soon as they came in, I mean, this was my heck at this point, it was my second week with the company. Mm -hmm. And i I was the guy that introduced them when they got there. I was like, I've made it a pro like, very adamant that i was the first person to talk to them walked up and i was like hey just want to introduce you to the place this is a uh, boulder creek outfitters we're going to be hunting the selway bitterroot wilderness it's one uh 1.3 million acres of never logged never touched by human land uh it's a great place and just for me doing that i mean the next week they sent me something in the mail just for introducing them and i was like That's this cool. is yeah i mean and they told me i mean they were like that made our experience better just by from the start being introduced like that and to me that was nothing to just go up and talk to them like that i i wasn't trying to do that out of like i just wanted to yeah you weren't trying to get these. nothing out yeah. of it you were just they being looked, the guy yeah they looked a little confused and i was like well i'll talk to them explain where they're at explain what's going on but yeah it's and just little moments like that can make a client's trip worthwhile like you just got to really, if, if a client is having a bad time, do not be afraid to address it mm -hmm. ever. Like take them aside and be like, what's going on. And if they tell you straight up and down what they think you're doing wrong, try and do mm -hmm. it better. That's all you can do. Yeah. It's funny how like you can have that conversation with a client. Most typically most time, you know, in these situations are they're men, not to say that I haven't guided women and I haven't, women haven't been camp, but like, it's not like having a conversation with a woman like, Oh, what's wrong? Nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you, if you call a, 
your client aside, he's most likely gonna you have to draw it out a little bit, but like Oh, like, they'll like, tell you. Yeah, they'll tell you, but like they're not gonna tell it in front of everybody. Now they might like Mm-mm. talk about you behind your back with everybody, but mm-hmm. they're but if you can call them and isolate them away from everybody else, they'll they'll eventually break down and and, and say, Yeah, the, here's here's my issues I'm having. And then Oh yeah. And it could even be somebody having a problem with somebody else in camp that you don't know what's going on. Because as right. a guide, I mean you're you're kind of I don't want to say the guidance counselor in that, but if there's a problem, you got to be the mediator. Like it's only oh, you, yeah. another guy and a cook. I mean, you guys kind of have yeah. to figure that out amongst yourselves. Right. But, but yeah, we haven't had any problems in camp with my clients. I mean, everybody's been good. We're, I mean, sometimes people get a little weary of the cell service. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we don't, I mean, we're 60 miles outside of cell service out there. So some people go, they have a little bit of a problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> Or a horse ride. We're about a, a two-hour horse ride away from cell service, but yeah, but sixty miles yeah. pretty far. Um, so kind of focus a little bit on the guide school. I'm just curious, my own curiosity. Like, can you kind of go over some of the details about some of the stuff you learned in that month, kind of like a week by week basis? Like, of like, what did you cover the first week? Now, I'm not asking to give away their trade secrets or anything like that of stuff they do, but just kind of stuff that what you learned and maybe just dive into a little bit of details. I got you. I actually have oh, my whole notebook from, oh, yeah. And this notebook, like, I mean, from front to back, I don't know if you can see that, but from front to back, like it is filled out. And this page in itself is just all things elk. Like we went through scouting, uh, the different, uh, weeds that you can find on the mountain that like after a burn goes through that elk, if you see fireweed growing in that elk love fireweed. So burns are a very, very good spot to hunt about a, and two years, three years after a burn, when the fireweeds really start to come through, mm-hmm. they'll mow that stuff down. But the biggest thing, like through, so first week when I got there, I mean, from jump, they wanted you to know basic horse terminology. They wanted you to know all about the horses and mules that you were going to be working with. Um, now, did you going in? Did you have any horse or mule experience? Uh, I had zero. Zero. As did many of the. It's actually listed on the website that you're encouraged to come if you have zero horse experience because they truthfully want to get you used to horses Mm -hmm. and you're riding the reason they like it if you have no horse experience is because in a lot of other places you're not riding western which is what you are riding when you're out in montana guiding Mm -hmm. for or, or idaho guiding for elk right but uh a lot of places ride english a lot of places just ride different different ways so Mm -hmm. guide schools all ride uh they all ride western and i mean day one they had us learn like uh about a full a colt like the difference the how a mule is made with a uh uh yeah a female horse and a male donk or a male donkey yeah and uh i guess to all through the first week when we got there day one I mean, they showed us around camp, and then I don't know if you've ever seen the, the uh, HBO series Band of Brothers. Yeah, years ago. In in the first episode, they uh, take them. They have a big spaghetti dinner for everybody, <laughs> and they take them right up the mountain. Really? So we went in, had a giant elk spaghetti dinner, and we're all sitting there freaking throwing food down. And our instructor Cody comes in and goes, "All right, guys." Uh, after dinner, make sure you get your backpacks, your bino harnesses, your boots. Make sure uh, your backpacks are good and full. We're going for a hike. And we our base camp was at 5,800 feet. And I think we went up to like 7,200, 7,300 feet wow. at, that night. 
And we went up and that was actually the, I mean, day one of guide school was the first time I had ever seen a herd of wild elk. We went up to a glassing knob, the whole class, it was all 10 of us and or 11 of us stayed up there and we watched a herd of elk come out and feed into a field and seeing that something just clicked in my head awesome. and I was like, okay, this is going to be fun. Yeah. And whole first week went through they had us uh day two like they got us very used to saddling uh they had us learn all all of the saddle parts and i forgot to mention every single day at either eight o'clock or eight thirty at night every day 20 plus question quiz open-ended uh yeah they want to drill this wow, stuff nice. in your head yeah. they're like they, they want to, they want they to be like, like a reflex yeah Exactly. And you need to graduate the class with a 75% average or better to get job placement in the class. So it they're serious about it. Like when you're going down through, you need to do good on these quizzes. It's there's physical testing where they're making sure that you're doing the knots properly for each thing They you have to do diamond hitch, basket hitch, barrel hitch, make sure you know how to do a crow's foot. It's they go through it very in depth. And that's First week is all like about the horses and everything. They just, we were riding, we rode 10 miles day two. That was the first time I ever rode. A lot of us were pretty bow legged when yeah. we got back. But uh, that the first week went through, that was pretty much we were riding every day, just trying to get stuff done. And then uh, the weekend came and we were shoeing. They had a sh cold shoe. So we, I mean, formed the shoes with a, uh, why can I not think what that's called? Uh oh, you just anvil. failed your test. An anvil, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, we would do the cold shoes, get them on, and we each had to do two horses. And then from then on, week two was all packing. We learned uh, they would have us like pack about 15 miles, is what they wanted us to do. Like we would just go around and pack in circles, trying to. And the biggest thing they wanted us to do is get used to taking loads off and put them back on. So, we they would give up like all of us would go get our gear just mm -hmm. whatever we had throw it in to a big pile and then you try and as the exercise you'd separate the piles so you could figure out which weights went with which and try and get even loads and then uh you'd pack the animals and you'd go probably about two three miles stop drop everything everybody drops everything put them back some somebody else rotates put them back on go up to the front and continue going another two, three miles and just repeat the process. So they really wanted you to know that the packing and honestly, like we had mules blow up, like the mule strings blow up. And I mean, stuff went wrong and that very much helps you and prepares you for when you're on a cliff side with a string of eight mules pulling and all of a sudden one of them goes off because a bee landed on its nose and you've now got to fix you got to get off your horse on the side of a cliff and fix these mules before they kill themselves right so that at least like little bit of knowledge and preparedness going into actually guiding from the guide school i mean that goes so far oh yeah and third week was all i mean that's when we got into hunting aspects of it where they we were learning how to hunt uh black bear pronghorn mule deer whitetail and elk so that was like those were the main things that, and like i said all of it kind of comes together in hunting like it's a it's a where i say it's a lot of different ways you can hunt mm -hmm. but it's a lot of the same ways of hunting it's just the different animals being plugged into different situations so 
we went up to racetrack peak in montana went to 9500 feet that was the highest i've ever been uh left camp at 3 30 in the morning that this was my favorite day the entire month of camp we woke we were told at our quiz the night before all right breakfast is at three tomorrow be up at 245 and we were all like looking at our watches like <laughs> it's midnight crap, it's already yeah it's already <laughs> eight o'clock and uh we all went to bed woke up got up at 2 30 the next morning and uh went in for breakfast and cody our instructor came, he told us specifically everybody in your camo he's like i want everybody in their camo we're like okay so we walk in and he goes all right guys uh be yeah have your breakfast down by 3 15 if you aren't in the suburbans by 3 30 we're leaving without you and we're like okay so we i mean we grabbed all of our stuff made sure we all had water Hopped in the Suburbans, took about an hour drive up to up a forest service road, uh, up to a parking lot, parked at 7,500 feet. And this was at about 430, 445. Mm -hmm. And the sun came up at 615. So we, and I mean, it's 9,500 feet at the top. So we had about 2,000 feet of elevation gain to go. And Cody looks around at us and goes, All right, be up at the top by sunrise. And I mean, we all took off for the top and we, we got up. And looking around, I just couldn't believe the scenery for one that I was seeing. I had never seen mountains that high up where you can just see as far as you can possibly think. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, this is insane. And then we're all standing there and we looked at, and I hadn't seen a bull yet when we were at guide school. Mm -hmm. All we saw were cows and calves in the herds. The bulls were still out by themselves. Well, what time of year was so, this? This was like mid-August. August, okay. Yeah, so they weren't really running around with the herds yet. They mm -hmm. were still keeping to themselves a little bit. So uh, we went, we were up on the ridgetop looking down. There was two bowls. The, like, it went straight down and bowed out. And we were looking around, and all of a sudden in this little meadow, out comes of two bowls walking through them. One was a pretty nice bowl. The other one was a raghorn. But seeing that like i mean we were two thousand feet above these bulls but looking down on them i was just thinking to myself like i did the right thing yeah. I was like this is oh, this good. is what i want to do and i mean we went through then the last week of guide school was uh to end it all out we did a four-day pack trip uh where we we rode 40 miles in total but we went 18 miles into the wilderness first day and it was the whole class so it was just all of us and it wasn't graded or anything. Mm -hmm. It was just a chance for all of us to go out and hang out. And I mean, there was a beautiful trout stream right next to camp and you could go fish it, catch all the trout in the world that you could possibly think of. I mean, we had, there was moose around camp. There was, it was, it was like heaven on earth being out there. And then I went from the four day pack trip straight into going right back out in the wilderness and, uh, at Boulder Creek, going straight into the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and then guiding for the next month. So that's crazy. They, ta they taught us a little bit about. I didn't mention this, but like one of the I should have mentioned this. This is really big. They taught us a lot about uh, equestrian first aid. Okay, yeah. So when it comes to horses, I'm this year when I go back out, I'm going to be going somewhere and buying a horse medical kit because i want to make sure i have that on my person at all times or at least in a saddle bag just in case anything were to go wrong but they made they had us administer shots um they had us uh administer medication to a horse that was sick i mean we they had us do quite a little bit of stuff 
and it was more or less learning. Cody administered one of the shots and he was showing us that like you have to insert it into the jugular when you're doing that and it's just got to be like a, like you got to pinch the jugular make sure that it pops up so you can see the actual uh pulse hit it get it back out like real quick like that and he was talking about dressings the different medications that you can use to treat what making sure that you're because i mean you use the wrong medication on a horse it's not good mm-hmm. especially if it's <laughs> Uh, there's two yeah there's two medications that are close that are kind of close to each other in name that we mixed up at guide school quite a bit like just talking about it okay and they told us they were like if you ever mix this up in the field one will kill the horse the other one will not so because if you are because of the different dosages Mm -hmm. because one dosage is very different from the other and if you are looking for one and mix up the dosage for that one it's not going to be good but they try to make sure drill into our heads. The biggest thing is that if a horse gets sick, you need to get it fixed quickly. Right. Like you don't, you don't want to let a sickness drag out on a horse. And if you don't have anything at your side to be able to get that horse help within, like if you're out in the wilderness and you don't have any first aid availability for a horse, turn it around, take it right back to camp and get a vet there. That's the biggest thing. Or if you can't get a vet there quick enough, make try and find uh medication that would apply to whatever is going on with the horse and that's why i keep this with me so i know the signs and symptoms of different things with horses like you i mean you sure don't want a horse to colic you don't want a horse to founder you like the different things that can go on with a horse very quickly we don't i mean we almost had a mule colic this year because you know how that happens where the poop gets stuck Mm -hmm. and I mean, the big as soon as you see something like that happen, you need to walk it out. And a lot of guides don't realize that that you need to grab that mule and just start walking them in circles. And if that doesn't work, you need to start try something else. Right. Because you can lose a mule or a horse very quickly if you're not paying attention. Yeah. One hundred percent. But yeah, I mean that we learn pretty much about other things as to I mean, all things elk, and then we had the different rubs, the different ways that you can find elk, like how they will move through. If you have a meadow, one side meadow, one side, and then thick timber going straight through the middle, they're not going to go through the meadows. Obviously, they're going to go straight through the thick timber because they have the most concealment through there. Um, We were learning about how elevation changes can really, really mess with elk. Like if you're getting up to about where I'm at in the cellway, I found out that there's a certain elevation that you hit that we have run into the elk every single time that we hit that elevation mm-hmm. and it's more or less because there's a there's a timber line coming down through and the timber line and it took a while for us to realize that we're like the timber they just come out of the timber and they don't want to fully commit to coming up to the higher elevation they would rather come out feed right at the timber line and then go right back into the timber and stay concealed right so i mean stuff like that really helped us and and guide school in general just as I said, it was an overall great experience. And without it, I don't know really what would have happened with me or where I, what outfit I would have went to. Cause I, I really needed the experience. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's even like, as you're, as you're telling me about the school, like I'm even just sitting here thinking like, even though I've got nine years under my belt chasing elk, I almost want to go to the school and just learn more. You know, and there not only that, like, do that. and like, Beyond that, like, even if somebody doesn't want to become a guide, like, if you want to be more proficient hunting out west, go to the school. 
because you're going to learn all these insider tips that the guides use because the guides got to produce week after week, you know, not just one time a year. So now granted, probably most people don't have like a month off that that they can take off in August. But still, if you want to, especially as a young, as a young person, before you really start your career of any, of anything like, you know, like summer break over, you know, between college semesters, like mm-hmm. take the month and just go learn how to be a better hunter out west. Like, why not? Take a shot. Take a shot. You know, learn. It's yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Like I, like I, the whole time you're sitting, I was like, man, how could I like, how could I finagle some more time off from my real <laughs> job to take August off and go and and go do this because it just sounds fun in general. Let alone just yeah. all the stuff that you would learn. And they run, they do run three courses. I mean, Mm -hmm. they run the May through June, June through July, and then August through September. Yeah. So, because I believe in that mid-July. I don't know if they're doing fishing guiding, but Mm -hmm. I think they might. Yeah. I I think they might, because that would make sense. Yeah. But, But yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an experience like no other. And for me, like, I just wanted to really get the word out about guide schools, because I, I don't know if you know who Remy Warren is. Yep. Uh, I was watching one of his podcasts and he was talking about, I, I submitted a question and I didn't know if it was the actual question that I submitted or if somebody else did, but it was about relating to guide school. Cause I said, I was going to a guide school and I said, what route do you think it's better to take guide school or not? And on his podcast, he even talked, he said, guide schools teach you stuff, but there is a way with every outfit, like every outfit does their own thing. Like how I said with the, we have like the frosty, the modified frosty, which is a modified crow's tip or crow's okay. foot that we do as a, as a basket or not a basket hitch as a uh, way of packing. And uh, he's correct on that. There's a different way for everything. And he said, the biggest thing with guide schools is they teach you. He used a term that I didn't really like about it. He said, cookie cutter. It's a cookie cutter program and that they, they teach you all the same stuff it's the basics it is true that it's the basics it's what's taught across guide school platforms but Mm -hmm. it's to get you into the industry it's not a cookie cutter platform there it's very individualized and they will help you out in any way shape or form that they can and it's more or less it's also a sorting tool in a way like you could have showed up first day and be like yeah you know what this isn't for me and and Mm -hmm. and and leave so like instead of committing to an outfitter to go work for them showing up the first two days and be like, you know what, this isn't for me. And then leaving the mm-hmm. outfitter stranded. So yeah. in, in a way it's a filter tool as well. Yeah, I would agree. One thing that guide school did tell, did show me is that when looking for an outfitter, I now know what to look for. Like if I were to say one day Boulder Creek were to be sold like in the future or something, and I would need a new place of employment, they taught me the things to look for in a, in an outfit that a normal person wouldn't come in and look at. Like one thing is immediately the condition of stock. If you can see that their stock, that an outfit's stock is not in good condition, why would their people be in any better condition? Good point. And that that's what they taught. They were like, if they don't treat the animals well, why would they treat you well as a person? Mm-hmm. And I, that stuck in my head. And I was like, you know, that's a very, very good point. And that... The demeanor of people when you get to an outfit, how people like some can be. I was very lucky in getting to my place that as soon as I started guiding, I mean, they were giving me waypoints. They were like, listen, this is where if you need help, just ask for help. Like, we all want to succeed here. 
it's not a all for one, one for all type of thing. It's a we are going to work as a team. So yeah, that's I mean, huge. Would, yeah, they were dropping me waypoints for uh, water holes for different trails coming through. Where the week before, if they had seen a rub, if they had a wallow, like anything going on that could be relating to elk, they drop me a pin for it and just show me. They'd be like, and if you need anything else, if you find, but it was also reciprocated. So right. if I found something, I wasn't going to keep it to myself. Yeah. I was going to tell them like, hey, I'm hunting here for the next three days. But if you guys want to hunt here after this, more than welcome to go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Like, I don't care. So, yeah, yeah it's just they teach you some things in, in guide school that more or less will help you in the industry in ways that you wouldn't think it would. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it'll yeah. help you in different outlets along the way. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a broad brush to kind of use like the, the cookie cutter, you know, not the term, but yeah. like. I can yeah. imagine that what you're what you're learning in the school is it's specific, but it's also a broad brush that's going to be able to give you the basics that it's going to allow you to go work for pretty much any outfitter that you're going to be able to take what you've learned and you're going to adapt it, whether it be the knots you're tying or strategies for different hunts in different areas. It's all just going to work and you just kind of, to me, it's like training a dog. Like you can't just take one person's method and mm -hmm. use that for training. You're going to take one person's method, another person's method, and then eventually going to take all that stuff and you're going to mold it in and make it your method. Yep. Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. But um, so you went right from graduation to guiding. Like, yeah. was that well, like a, a huge shock or like? It was pretty much that. So what happened was the third week of guide school, Matt offered Matt, my outfitter, offered me a job and I knew I was going to be guiding in rifle season. But he asked me if I was interested in guiding for archery. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be honest. I told him absolutely not. <laughs> I was like, I am not going to take somebody else out hunting for something that I myself have never hunted and don't know how to hunt. I said, I haven't even been within 15 yards of a wild elk much less 100 or yeah yeah sorry i haven't been within 150 yards of an elk much less 15 mm -hmm. which is archery range out right there. Yeah. so i told him i was like i can't do that but if you have another job open i'd i'd take it and he goes well we have a cook open for the month of september and i was like okay yeah i'm down to come cook and i thought about it i was like i could definitely use the learning of my territory because I started thinking of what Jim Shockey said. I was like, mm -hmm. I need to know my territory. And if I go out there and start guiding right away, I'm not going to know anything. Right. So I took the job as a cook. And then we grad we graduated from guide school. Matt actually wanted me there before we went on the pack trip. And we had that option at guide school. Like if we had a job open to us, they were like, go for it. Go mm -hmm. get it. But I was like, no, I'm doing this till the very end. Yeah, I'm full commit. Yeah. Pack trip. And uh, at the after the pack trip, all of us agreed. We were like, all right, we're going to go to this little bar in town, grab a drink, say our goodbyes. Went into town, grabbed our drinks, headed out. And then uh, me and my buddy Ian hopped in his truck and he took us over Lolo on the Highway 12 down through and dropped me off at Wilderness Gateway. And heck, I I sat in camp for about six hours before I met anybody. I was just, I didn't have <laughs> cell service. I didn't have anything. And I'm standing there because the guides were supposed to come back. I was supposed to text before i didn't realize that when you go like cross into lolo cross into idaho anyway uh -huh. you don't have service anymore there is no service for the rest of the way mm -hmm. until you pass like the 60 miles past wilderness past wilderness gateway okay so 
I couldn't text anybody to let them know that like I was there. And I also didn't realize that Idaho time was another hour behind Montana time. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm getting there at five when I'm realistically getting there at four. And I told him I was getting there at five and he's like, Oh yeah, they'll be there at eight. And I was, I got there and I'm like, Oh boy. So yeah. I waited, the guides came in and it was uh Sam and TJ and Brian and Sam and TJ are both 20 and 22. And then Brian is, uh, uh, he's 30, he's 101st, former 101st. Mm -hmm. And, uh, coolest guys I've ever met in my life. Awesome. It was just like, it came out of nowhere that it was just very weird to get involved into an outfit that quick. And these guys were very quick to be like, are you actually our cook? And I was like, well, I'm going to guide and rifle, but I'm a, I'm a cook just for the, and they were like, that makes a lot more sense. You don't look like a cook. They were like, you look like a guy. <laughs> and then, uh, the first week went through, I cooked the whole first week. I, I went out with the guides a couple of times just to kind of get my feet wet mm -hmm. make sure that I knew what I was doing. And, uh, all of a sudden the second week comes around and him, my outfitter goes, yeah, no, uh, one of our guides didn't show up so you're it and i went i'm it and he goes you're it you're and it. uh i took out a client from wisconsin uh, i'll say his name matt he was a real good guy he had a good time with me we had a bowl at 10 yards on our third day awesome and uh we unfortunately didn't get the bowl but matt if you're i'm gonna send him this podcast so if you're listening we're gonna get a bowl this year <laughs> but uh he wants to come back again this year hopefully and get one but yeah, it was the fir whole first week was like a dream because, I mean, from day one, we had bulls bugling and it was amazing to <laughs> I mentioned to my client, I was like, yeah, no, I went to guide school and this and that. And uh, about it was after we had had the opportunity on the elk, mm -hmm. we're sitting at dinner and he goes, looks at me and goes, so when did you go to guide school? and i kind of like <laughs> yeah i i didn't want to answer i was like do you want to want me to answer that honestly and he goes yeah and i said well i graduated about a week and a half ago <laughs> and he goes, how long have you been working here i was like one day less than that and he goes are you serious he was i mean he was happy that right. uh, that we had the bowl opportunity but he was like man that's that's awesome that's cool but but yeah, yeah, the whole first the whole first month was a heck of a time. I learned so much in that first month. And then I mean it was more or less I kept getting opportunity after opportunity after that and somehow ended up then going not hunting with but being in camp with Donald Trump Jr. Mm -hmm. And that yeah, that arises somehow. Hannah Barron was there, Christy Lee Cook was there, and mm -hmm. all came out hunting. And to me, I'm thinking, I started working here a month ago and <laughs> I guess, I mean, doors kept opening. It kept getting better and better. And yeah. I mean, the hunting kept getting better and better too. Awesome. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's just being open to it and not being closed door. I mean, doors open, don't be afraid to walk through them. Oh, yeah. That's the big thing, especially in this industry. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, that's crazy. That for sure. So, so you did September archery, so then you went into rifles. So how did your rifle season go? Rifle season went real well. Uh, I believe we got we got quite a few elk because uh, we hunt. So uh, it's very different. I have to explain this to a lot of people because I hunted three different places this year, um, all in the same outfit, but just three different spots. Okay. The Sel Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, uh, we run our bear hunts out of. We run our archery elk hunts out of. And we also run wilderness rifle hunts out of there too. So... If you want to, 
if you want to hunt, I would say, if you want to hunt rifle, I would say hunt the ranch because then we have Hell's Canyon Ranch, which is, I mean, we don't hunt the Snake River side anymore. We uh, hunt the Salmon River breaks. Okay. But that is some of our success rate there is 95%. Our opportunity rate is 100%. Mm-hmm. In the wilderness, you're sitting at about 15 to 20% success rate over rifle. And then archery is 5 to 10. So it's the wilderness is a lot harder hunting but to me it's a lot more beneficial for like your own gain because you actually have to put in real hard like not like the ranches and hard work i mean you shoot one in a bad place down there you're going to be hiking up 1500 feet of elevation Mm -hmm. so just kind of depends but to me it's just how low the quantity of elk versus like how hard it is to hunt them in in the wilderness mm-hmm. then versus hell's canyon i just think the wilderness is a little bit more fun that's just my own personal opinion nothing wrong with that but but hell's canyon then uh our rifle season which uh, that was where i was at for october 10th until november 3rd i was there and we got i would say probably close to 45 elk somewhere around there wow yeah we got a pretty decent amount because we run around 20 hunters a week when they come in and we have that's cows and bulls Mm -hmm. so and a lot of people come out with like our cow tags it's a draw system cow tag out there and most people that put in for a cow out there are going to draw so we do quite a few cow hunts quite a few bull hunts and i mean we get some sizable bulls we had uh trump jr's bull was i would say probably about a i don't want to go over on this one (laughs) but yeah i'm gonna say in my professional opinion, probably a 323 to 340 bull somewhere in that range. That's a good bull. It wasn't a crazy bull, but it was nice. It was a real nice bull. And then, uh, yeah, we had a, a 13 year old get a seven by seven. Nice. That was something crazy to see the mm-hmm. look on that kid's face. <laughs> but, but yeah, our rifle season went over real well. And then they also run a rifle season, uh, in Whitebird, Idaho as well down at the bottom of the salmon river breaks in Whitebird, and uh we own or not own we lease uh a ranch out there that it's all the same owner that we lease all through hell's canyon mm-hmm. and uh yeah the elk hunting out there is second to none in my opinion i mean you can go out and there's herds of 300 running around like it's nothing cool yeah the kind of we can talk elk for days but i kind of want to touch on uh some whitetail stuff because i saw on your instagram that you kind of doubled up on a whitetail on the last day. Like, what what was that story about? How did that, how'd so, you pull that one off? Uh, it's actually kind of funny. So that that broke. We got a buck called Screwball on the <laughs> okay. last day, and we nicknamed him Screwball because he had a broken right side. He had a real weird. It when we saw it, we thought it was an antler deformity. Mm-hmm. It looked like because there was still a little bit of a point there, but it looked like it almost hooked down. Okay, so we were like, okay, well that's weird. And what's funny is I had seen this buck the first week when we were out there and me and my first client were going to try and shoot him, but we couldn't get on it. So the third week comes around and we had had not a tough deer season, but we had a EHD blow through uh, two years ago okay. and was not to our advantage. A lot of the mature deer on our ranch were taken about probably about 50 to 60% of them. were yeah, taken. That's pretty so, stuff. Yeah, it was, it would, it hurt it hurt us this year so we're it was day one we were sitting there and this screwball buck we're sitting at the bottom of a of a draw 
And at the top, the screwball buck comes right over the top looking at us. And he was probably at five, 600 yards at that point. But I had my binos and I was looking at him. And my client happened to see him too. And he had never gotten a whitetail before. Okay. So, and these guys were, their names were uh, BJ and Mike were their names. And BJ was the one, they were, uh, Mike was from either Washington or Oregon. And then BJ was from California. And the BJ had never seen wild whitetail, had never killed a, I don't know. I know he had never killed a whitetail. I I'm pretty sure he said he had never seen a whitetail before either. He had hunted plenty of blacktail, but had never hunted whitetail. So he wanted his buck to be, you know, Unique. one of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike, uh, his buddy, that big eight point that we got with a kicker, mm-hmm. it should have been a nine point, but <laughs> for Western hunters listening, a five by four or four by five. Um, he, he took his shot at 418 yards, got that nice buck. And that same day when we were hunting, um, we saw that screwball buck again. And that was day two Okay, that he, that Mike got that nice, that nice buck. And we saw me and BJ see the screwball buck again. And Mike says something. He's like, you guys ought to try and kill that buck. And I'm just sitting there like, Oh my gosh, please don't tell him. Because <laughs> it's an, it is a very sizable deer. Like uh-huh. it weighed, I'll tell you, it weighed 172 with no guts in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was a nice buck for Idaho. Yeah. And uh, so VJ keeps telling me, he's like, I want to kill this screwball buck, right? So I had to go and pick up one of the guides with a side-by-side and his clients. And I'm coming back around. And I saw this buck on my way to go pick them up. Mm -hmm. That was a 140-class or bigger eight-point. Easy. Just looking at him. I mean, his brow tines were sitting four or five inches off his head. And his G2s were another seven, eight inches higher than that. Oh, wow. So... I'm looking at this deer and I'm like, this is the deer. Like, that's what he he should shoot. Right. And I got up to camp. He was having lunch and I grabbed him that quick. I was like, come on, we're going to kill your deer. And he goes, what? We go down there and we get on this deer. We're sitting about, it was probably 400 yards is how far it was. And I'm looking at this deer through the spot and scope. And I was like, dude, you need to take this deer. Right. And he's like, he looked at it. He's like, nah, I don't think I'm gonna. Wow. And I'm like. Oh no! Oh my gosh! And then about five minutes later, doesn't this stupid screwball buck come right, <laughs> right over, over the top? top? And the thing was, we only saw him for five seconds, so we knew he was still there. Like I knew where he lived; he was right up on top. And this, it, it was like a two hundred yard patch of brush. Okay. And the screwball buck came right over and looked over at us, turned around, and went the other way. So we knew it was up there. And he goes, "That's the buck that I want to kill." And I was like. All right, well, tomorrow we're gonna we're gonna put in our best effort for it. So the next day we came out and we sat on this buck for six hours. Wow. Watching this deer. I mean, I the we went in the morning. We were gonna go up on a side by side to go up one of the paths up to the top and uh up to the top of the one of the draws where like a finger ridge comes down where we can sit and have a good glassing knob. Mm-hmm. But as we were going out, we had about six inches of powder and our wheels would not i mean we had four-wheel driving and we were just spinning out every time we were trying to go up Mm -hmm. so i told him i was like all right let's just get out and hike and bj instead of like i don't like people making a plan that much but when they come up with a good plan i am all for it right so he's like all right i got a plan i'm like all right i'll hear you out and he goes so i'm gonna he said he was gonna hike up to the top of the draw he asked me to go back out with the side by side to the uh there's a, a basin right along the road 
and sit at that basin so we could both watch from two different angles the same area and see who saw the buck first. I found the buck first and ended up sitting there, like I said, for six hours. Right. Trying to figure out this buck. He found the buck. And then finally, this buck stood up, mounted a doe, right? Okay. So he at least spread his jeans. Right. Laid back down for about 20 minutes and stood up again because a little fork, forky four point came okay. in and just started causing havoc. So this buck starts chasing this little forky around. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the buck, then up to my client and down to the buck. I'm waiting for him to take the shot because I know he can see this deer. And I see him like sitting up. And then all of a sudden I look up there and he's not sitting up anymore and I can't see him. <laughs> so I'm like, he's definitely laying prone, getting ready for the shot. And I'm looking, looking, looking. And the deer's standing broadside to him. So I'm like, dude, he's got to be pulling the trigger. Right. Yeah. You just And all waiting. of a sudden, I had never experienced, like, you know how when somebody's really far away and you're looking at something, but they pull the trigger and you see that thing flinch and then the shot comes about two seconds later. Right. I'm sitting there watching this deer and I see this deer just hunch up and jerk. And I was like, what the heck just happened? And then I heard the shot and I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, you got it. And yeah, this deer took off and he, BJ told me there's a lot. This story keeps going. BJ told me he dropped this deer. He's like, this deer is dead on the ground, laying there dead. I uh -huh. looked at it. And I was like, okay. So I got different side by side, went up, grabbed him. Or not grabbed him. He beat me over to the deer. He tried to get over there real quick. And I grabbed another guide so we could go up and track it. And I just needed help getting it out. Well, we get up there and there's blood in an area. There should not be blood. Mm. I mean, like nowhere. Absolutely. This deer was not anywhere near this area. And there's a big old pool of blood right there on the ground. And we're like, oh, no. oh boy. Yeah. So I go down to where he shot. And I mean, it looks like a murder scene down there i mean there's just there's blood freaking everywhere all over the trees like some almost up to my neck in height there was blood <laughs> that high and i'm thinking what the heck happened to this deer and then i'm looking and the trees were folded over so this deer fell and rolled and uh. then somehow got back up and took off running and like it was we've chased this deer for a mile and a half wow okay this deer was not lethally hit okay okay now the only reason it made it lethal was because we were chasing this deer and it was causing the blood to keep running and not coagulate. Because okay. if we had let that deer lay, it would have it would have lived huh. easily because it would have it was already clumping up. Mm -hmm. So we started chasing it, and I know probably people listening would be like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you chase a deer that's shot?" Right at this point in time, it was bleeding that much that we were like, "We have to keep chasing it, mm -hmm. otherwise we were going to lose it." So. We kept running. BJ got another shot off on it, missed it. And uh, we came up over the ridge and we had actually chased this deer out of blood. So it, I mean, we had to give it a mercy shot. Mm -hmm. But when we got up there, I mean, we looked at the hole where BJ had hit. I don't know how this is possible, but this deer was standing with his left shoulder to the gun. Okay. okay? BJ, when he shot, missed the left shoulder somehow went underneath it hit the right shoulder in the armpit and exited out through the front without touching a vital huh and then we chased him down and yeah he ended up he got wow. here yeah but yeah that was an interesting one i too i was a little worried about that one well that's crazy that that 
you know, that, and that's like the patience that you have to have out West. And sometimes like you find a deer, you got to sit on it mm-hmm. for hours and just mm-hmm. wait for it to make the move. Cause sometimes if, if you make the move too early, then you, you can definitely blow him no, out. You'll there. blow it. Yeah. You'll blow it quick because the biggest thing with them is in those thick brushy draws, you can have, yeah, you'll have an angle all day where you're sitting, but you move a hundred yards to your right. See if you have that same angle. Because yeah. I can guarantee you won't. Yeah, you it's won't very, see them. Unless it's wide open where they're laying, it is so hard to hunt whitetails in those brushy draws just because, I mean, you can try and plan a stalk to get in on close to them. But the first time that I tried to kill Screwball with my first client the first week, yeah. we tried to do a stalk on him, and we blew him right out of that area because we got within 20 yards of that buck. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, but we couldn't see him because right. there's just a brush wall right in front of you. We knew where we were. We knew where he was, mm-hmm. and then we heard him blow up when he got close. It's crazy. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just amazing on how on how just a slight angle will change, you know, in any kind of canyon where you think you can like, oh, if I just move here, I'm going to get a better angle. I should be able to see more ground, and I'll still be able to see the animal. And you make that move, and you're mm-hmm. like, okay. I lost him. I can't see him now. And then you try and go back to where you were, and then you still can't find him because, like, he mm-hmm. may have got up and moved. Like, it's crazy. Yep. So sometimes yeah. just patience is the name of the game on that 100%. Well, it was funny. I had my – well, on that screwball buck, I had my eye in my spotting scope for about an hour, and I pulled off of it. And I was, like, just giving my eye, like, I don't know, two minutes to rest. Like, just, all right, I'll, I'll look at it again in a minute. I looked back at the spotting scope. And that deer, I didn't move the spotting scope, and mm-hmm. that deer was nowhere to be found. And I was like, "Dude, no, oh, no, are you your serious? heart sinks." And yeah, and I looked. I was, I started looking around the air. I was like, "Okay, he couldn't have gone this way. Couldn't have gone this way. Couldn't have gone." And there was a big brush patch that he was ended up standing behind and laying uh-huh. down in. But I was like, "That has to be where he is," and I'm not taking my eye off of it until he walks out. Right. And then he finally walked out. Yeah, but, I got thinking because like if you went. If you went right from from Pennsylvania to guide school to guiding, like your gear, like what did you have? Like what? Like, I had nothing. Like you had like <laughs> like uh, two changes I had of clothes and strata, you know, and like you had, you had like two changes of clothes, a set of camo. Like, did you have sleeping bag? Did you have like like what? yeah? So, oh man, I wish I had the list. But when uh, when we for guide school, he gives you an in-depth list. Mm-hmm. Then you need to have everything on that list, right? So, that, so you and brought you, everything you needed, at, you know, to the school. Yeah, and yeah. then you just kind of hoboed yeah. it all the way. Pretty know. much, yeah. I I took everything that I had, made sure it was all washed before I got to camp, and then, yeah, it was. I mean, they told us like we needed to have at least a zero degree sleeping bag. Like they they told us to make sure that we had the correct layering systems, like. For me, I mean, the camo that I was wearing, I was wearing Redhead Strata camo, okay. which there's nothing wrong with Redhead. I love Redhead. It's right. just a cheaper camo. Yeah. But for me, then I got into guiding and Matt, my outfitter, was like, oh, what what do you have? Do you need some gear? And I was like, I could use a jacket and a pair of pants. And he got me a Sitka jacket and a pair of pants. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm on the Sitka. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is the team I'm going to stay on. But... But yeah, nah, it was uh, the gear that I had. Like, I had good binos. I had cow calls, at least. I had elk calls. I had pretty much everything that I needed. 
but there there was definitely some improvements to be made mm-hmm. like with my first aid kit my uh just some of the stuff that i carried like the flashlights that i was carrying the different headlamps like i had a ten dollar headlamp and i realized that when you're in the wilderness it's better to probably spend the 25 extra dollars like get a 35 50 headlamp than mm-hmm. it is to not because that could really come into a situation where you really need it <laughs> yeah so like with the headlamp it's funny you say that like it's to me it's like one of those things is like it's it's because it's so small and so lightweight it, i always i always carry two because that's one of the situations where you know one is none and two is one and uh yeah even even if that second one is just a little cheap $20 one like it just having that peace of mind that if your main one goes down you've got something else as a backup oh yeah yeah if you do, <laughs> yeah my biggest thing was like how you like I said, headlamps. But when we went out, me and my clients went out on an 11 and a half mile hike, went out 3,500 feet in elevation. And then we're coming back in the dark and we were still on the mountain when the sun went down. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking to myself, I didn't have a headlamp. I had a flashlight in my bag, but I would much rather have had a headlamp because when you need your hands, when you're climbing over deadfall and stuff in the dark, oh yeah, you start realizing everything that you should have brought <laughs> right. real quick. Yeah. Yeah, hands free. So like you've already mentioned a couple things like the like the horse kit, you know, um things you want to, you know, headlamps. Is there any kind of kind of skill or anything like that that you kind of want to improve for next season that you're trying to build upon? You said skill? Like a skill like whether it could be like more horse stuff or like better calling or is there anything that you're trying to like build upon from what you've learned from this past season to try and be better for next season? Yeah, more horse stuff, definitely. I love to make sure, like, I want to make sure that my horses are in the best possible shape that they can be in mm-hmm. at all times. Like, I don't want to to mess around with a horse getting sick or being, like, say, underfed, a horse getting skinny. Like, because, I mean, a horse gets skinny and that leads to sickness. That's the biggest thing. So, uh, that, my, my guiding skills in general, I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty good guy, but like I said, I only have three months of experience at this mm-hmm. point guiding in the industry. So I just really want to make sure that I can connect with people of all cultures when they come out. Cause you have a lot of different people that come out. Yeah. I mean, a lot of different people with a lot of different viewpoints mm-hmm. and it's very, like, you can say something in a conversation that you think is completely harmless to someone, but I mean, you got to realize who your crowd is. That's the biggest thing that I've learned is like, you can't like, I mean, like they say, never talk politics in camp Mm -hmm. because there's no, there's no place for it. And I mean, like no politics, no religion. Yeah. Yeah. When I was at whitetail camp, I mean, the elections were going on. Right. So So that's tough. The midterms. So like we're sitting there and like the clients want to watch the elections on TV and I'm sitting there and I'm like, Man, I was because before I went out to Idaho, I will not lie, I was very political. Like I was uh, over this all this COVID stuff that had, everything mm-hmm. that happened in the past two years, I got very political and I got very wrapped up in it. And I shouldn't have. It's stupid. And then mm-hmm. being in the wilderness when you're not around it for a month, you're like, why was I wrapped up in that to start with? And then when you get back to people who are still wrapped up in it, and they bring it up, right? That's where. It's like the switch in my head clicks. We're like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. No, yeah. It's like there's there's nothing positive that's going to come from this conversation. So let's just, uh, we, me and my one client had a conversation that was about like it started getting into all the stuff that went on in 2020. And I even I stopped the conversation and I said, and see, 
isn't it nice that we don't have to worry about any of that? Because we're out here in the middle of the wilderness with not a care in the world and nobody to tell us anything else. And he stopped and looked at me and he's like, yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. And I was like, exactly. You don't, there's no, if it's in your own head, yeah, it's in your own head, but you don't need to talk to everybody else about it. Yeah. And that's a good way to handle it because that, you know, there's a lot of times people have that start saying things like that. And you're like, man, how can I, how can I redirect this conversation? And cause I really don't want to talk about this. And it just, for me, sometimes I'll say something like that, or, or it could just be like, well, yeah, you know, yep. Yeah, 2020 happened and, but, uh, I'm living my life out here right now. And, you know, and then ask them something more personal of that's outdoor related, you know, oh, for, yeah. for me, the big thing is like the first couple of days is always, I always ask them a ton of questions about their life and their family and their hobbies and the things that they're into. So that way I know how to, you know, when the time comes when he's asking me about things, because most time I've found that like, if you ask somebody about their family or something, they're going to reciprocate. So I almost controlling Mm -hmm. the conversation to purposely keep it away from that, those kinds of conversations, you know, Mm -hmm. and and you learn more about the person and those first couple of days, you'll be able to learn, what you can say and what you can't say, like how much can you joke with them? You know, are they a joking kind of guy or are they more serious? Yeah. So you can kind of read the room in that sense in those first couple of days. That's a big thing about guides is being able to read someone from the time that they meet you. you if you can do that, you will be much better off as a guide, in my opinion, just because if you can see that somebody is kind of edgy when they walk in at first and you like, introduce yourself but don't be over blunt about it like don't try and force everything you want to tell them onto them right away if you mm-hmm. can see somebody kind of wants to keep to themselves they don't really want to talk have one-on-ones with them rather than bringing them into the whole group setting stuff like that like it's it's just it's almost like a psychologist job and a guy in, in a camo outfit like all you're trying to do really is trying to figure out the people that you're with and then satisfy them to whatever needs they need satisfied yeah pretty much yeah and it's kind of like outdoor counseling sometimes like even the clients you can have like more in-depth conversations about certain things about your own life with them that you're going to have anybody else because of what they Mm -hmm. do for a living oh yeah you know once once you learn all that stuff what what they do you know for a living and and what they've done the conversations you can have are, are endless because who knows what's what you can talk about when you're sitting there for six hours, oh, you yeah. know, glass Doors and a deer. Open. You can only be silent for so long before somebody's going to start talking. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. But yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, is there anything that you did like last season, you know, in for elk or whitetail that you've learned from already? That like, oh man, I'm not going to do that again. Did you have any of those moments yet? Let's see. I had a couple. Oh. Yeah. One thing, uh, don't panic. That was the biggest thing. I panicked when I had a mule string blow up. It only made it worse. And then once I called myself down, mm-hmm. went perfectly fine. Um, yeah, because we had a mule that was coming down the hill and just didn't want every single time. He just didn't want to come down and he put the brakes on and snap the piggins. And then the rest of the mules would bug out once their pigging whacked them in the ass. Mm-hmm. Uh Let's see about the hunting aspect, more or less. Um, I know that I need to take control. That's what the sense? biggest. In the sense that I've only been hunting these animals for a year. Yes. But if you're putting your trust in me to get you an animal, 
I'm going to put my foot down and that we're going to do it my way and not, not the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Take control. We had an opportunity last year. I'm not going to say client's name or anything, but we had uh, an opportunity last year where me and another client were arguing about wind and there was a bull coming in. I mean, we knew where this bull was from the day beforehand, went out there, got to, I mean, 150 yards from where he was. I let it, I let out a cow call and this guy bugled so quick, turned and came running. And I told him, I was like, Hey, you guys got to get ready. Like he's coming in. And, uh, one of my clients wanted to argue with me about wind and he's like, well, the wind's not in our favor. He's going to smell us as soon as he comes in. I said, I don't care. He's coming in. Like he is coming in. And, uh, He's like, no, I still think about the winner. I was like, all right, if you want to move, we can move. And we moved about 10 yards, and this bull comes across the clearing at about 75 yards and looked down, saw us all turn and ran. And I was like, to me, in my head right there, I was like, never again. I was like, I'm, if yeah. I say something, we're doing it. Yeah. Like, I, I, and if I make the wrong decision, that's on me. Right. That is, I take responsibility for that. But the decision, and I, we talked about it afterwards. And I was just like, listen, the decision is mine to be made. It's not, anybody else is at that point especially when a bull's coming straight in at you you can't really you don't have much time to think in that situation yeah 100 so. percent. i mean it's that taking charge because a lot of times you know bulls can come in and they can be so fired up that they don't even care about the wind sometimes mm-hmm. that they're just going to come in and you know they're coming in looking for you looking for a fight or something like that and wind means nothing mm-hmm. and sometimes the client doesn't understand that because a lot of times yeah, when you're out hunting, you're preaching wind, win this, win that. But who who knows what's going to happen once that moment comes in? Because if you're blowing smoke, you can see that, okay, my scent's going to go up there and travel, and then it's going to cut across and never even reach him. Mm-hmm. Yep, pretty much, yeah. So, yeah, other than that, I mean, there's not too much. Anymore. Just really don't be stupid. Make smart decisions. Make sure you're safe in places that have fun, but be safe. That was another thing that I learned out there. You can't like, yeah, it's all fun and games running on top of deadfall that can hold you. But the second you slip and one of those kickers goes straight through your thigh. <laughs> yeah. You're going to find out real quick. Right. It's not all fun and games in the world. It's fun to be outside, but there's a lot of things outside that can kill you. And people need to realize that sometimes others more than most, but yeah, people, some, sometimes you just need really a dose of reality to understand that you're a lot smaller than you think you are. Yeah. Especially when you're out there 60 miles from cell service. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that, and just, uh, I mean, personal responsibility, like understanding that if something goes wrong and you're out there by yourself, just, I mean, it's on you fix it. Yeah. Don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't rely on somebody else to come help you because nobody is. If you have another guide with you, yeah, they're going to help you. But guess what? Nobody's coming to save you guys. If you guys are screwed and like you need to get something done very quickly, mm-hmm. there's no one coming for hours. Right. So if yeah. you have a mule blow up, if you have a mule go over a cliffside and you got to go down and pack out that saddle and that and whatever load he had on, mm-hmm. go down and do it. Right. Suck it up and go do it. Don't rely on somebody else to come help you. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty much what I've learned. It's like, and that that didn't happen this year. But I've just thought about that. Like going, like when you're out there that far, it goes through your head as to though, if something goes wrong, man, everything's on what you the next move yeah. that you make. Your highest level training. Um, that's what you're gonna fall back on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but yeah, guiding in itself, 
Uh, if I could encourage more people my age to get into it, I would. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, if you ever, if you're, if you love the outdoors and you're at a state in your life where you are young enough and ambitious enough to be able to just drop everything and go across the country, freaking do it, man. Cause you only have one chance in life to be able to do something like that. Might as well do it. Yeah. Do it when you're young. Um, just a few more questions for you. Okay. We kind of talked a little bit about gear. I'm mm-hmm. kind of more curious about some more details about the kind of gear that you have, and especially just starting out. Like, what kind of? I mean, you mentioned you had, you know, redhead camo, and you got some Sitka things like that. Like, if you had like a, a magic wand, like what would be like the one piece of gear you wish you had that would you make appear? Like, would it be like a good spotter? Would it be boots or? Honestly, it would probably be the pack. Okay. The pack, because I had, I don't even know what pack I had. It wasn't a very expensive pack, but one of my, one of the guides that was there during uh, archery, he, he's a waterfowl guide uh, for loaded timber waterfowl out in Idaho. And he had to leave early at the end of the season. So he, for the last week, he just sold me some of his stuff. So he sold me his, uh, his pack and his pack was good. I used it through, uh, through rifle season and i packed out a couple elk with it mm-hmm. but it's just the weight the weight bearing on it like it didn't have a good frame system it didn't have really as much as you would want out of a pack so this off season when i was actually at the outdoor show i bought a mystery ranch pack oh nice okay and, yeah i really wanted i bought there i think it's the 4800 okay but the that is very much going to see me because i used a mystery ranch pack a little bit when i was out there and my buddy sam that's a guide with me. He uh, he has a mystery ranch pack, and he talks about it all the time. Mm-hmm. As to the fact of how comfortable it is, and how I mean, when you throw a seventy pound quarter in the back of it, it doesn't feel like anything's there mm-hmm. with the pack frame and everything. It really takes the load off. I was like, is, so, is that an is that an internal pack frame or external? Uh, I believe it's an ex. I believe. Like, can it's you an take external. the pack off, or do you, or is it like built yeah. into the pack? Yeah, it's an external. It's an external. All right, so you can like swap out different size packs on the frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. But that uh, my bino harness was a big one. I mean, I have a, Le- a Leopold bino bino harness that I like, but I know I need to get a better bino harness because mm-hmm. a lot of them, like, I mean, that can when you're walking and you you got a bino harness rubbing in if you have light layers on and you have that thing tight you got to watch that you don't rub your the insides of your freaking arms off yeah i have a problem with like, i have a problem with actually like my nipples like how it runs where, chafing and stuff yeah like yeah, chafes on the people. nipple like like on the chest there just like if if i'm just running just my straight you know my lightweight layer and then i've got that bino harness on like i have to like adjust the strap so it like sits mm-hmm. in a different spot and the the other thing that I found out the hard way, uh, boots. Okay. okay. So for I got a pair of Dan. I needed a pair of boots. I had a pair of Rockies going into archery elk season, and okay. I knew those Rockies were not going to last me two freaking weeks. I was mm-hmm. going to blow them out if I was hiking a lot. And I was completely right on that. They lasted me about a week <laughs> until they blew out. And my boss matt actually he told me like when he was getting me my gear that i need he's like well, anything else you need i was like a pair of boots good pair of boots so he got me a pair of danner pronghorns okay now in archery and rifle season those are the best boots i have ever worn in my life like when there's not snow on the ground mm-hmm. best boots i've ever worn in my life they're comfortable they breathe like you can hike for miles and miles and miles in them they're not going to blow out they're not going to wear too bad mm-hmm. um 
you take those things out in snow. I found out very quickly because I didn't realize there was no insulation in them. Mm. Uh, I was, I, yeah, <laughs> I should have gotten a brand new pair of boots for the winter season. Mm-hmm. But I was like, ah, screw it. I'll suffer through with Danners. I was like, it's not that big of a deal. I lost feeling in my big toes for the past three months and I only got them back about a month ago. Oh, so wow. I was glad to get the feeling back because I was starting to get worried. Mm-hmm. But genuinely, like for anybody listening that doesn't have a warm pair of boots in the winter and thinks that you can just suffer through it, it's not worth suffering through it. Because <laughs> if you lose, you damage the nerve endings in your feet to the point where you can't feel them anymore. Right. It's You can't get it back. That's not good. Yeah. yeah. You can get it back. It's just you're going to be sitting in a warm bath every night for about 20 minutes soaking your feet at the hottest temperature you can. Right. Because yeah. you, yeah, I just found out like insulated socks. I that I had very insulated socks. I had very like everything else. I was making sure, but the one thing you need to make sure is boots. If you don't have insulated boots in Idaho and you're hunting, I mean, we had 12 inches of powder and it was six degrees outside. So you can wear gaiters. That'll help keep the snow out of your boots. But I guess what gaiters won't keep you warm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I I. I the the dinner pronghorn is what I prefer, especially mm-hmm. the same thing. Like when there's snow on the ground, my, my feet do get cold really quick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I pack like, uh, I'm always in my backpack for those instances. Cause like when you're up in the mountains, you never know what the weather's going to do. But like, I've got like an extreme heavyweight sock that, I, that I put on that, that kind of helps, but yeah. Heck yeah. Well, the, I, to my, my opinion, I mean, Kenetrack makes a really good, uh, packing boot for those winter, like when you're doing bear season in the spring mm-hmm. or like you're doing winter elk season, not winter, but I guess late fall elk season. Um, more or less like Kenetrack, Schnee's, Crispy, I haven't seen if they make a real good packing boot. But I know Kenetrack and Schnee's for me, like if I'm going to, I'm probably going to get a pair of either Kenetracks or Schnee's when I get back out there. Mm-hmm. But Schnee's is in Montana, so I'd like to go to the actual Schnee's, I mean, store. Right. And then get something there. But... But yeah, other than that, I mean, I found out my spotting scope, like I bought a Maven S1A when I was out there. And for a lot of people that don't know Maven optics, that they are real deal. Yeah. They're up there with the best of them. Yeah. They're, they're very close to Swarovski. I I have a, I have a Maven binocular and. Oh, you do? Extremely impressed with it. Extremely Mm -hmm. impressed with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got my Maven S1A. I guess the guy, he had done a hunt with Boulder Creek at Hell's Canyon about four years ago, and he bought that S1A specifically for that hunt. Mm-hmm. And then he sold it to me for a grand. He was like, I used it four times, dude. He's like, if you want it, yeah. man, I'll sell it to you for a thousand. I was like, sounds good. So I bought that. <laughs> I'll buy it from me uh, for 1100 <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, other than that, it was just like gloves. The different layering systems that you can wear out there, like a lot of people need to realize when you go into the wilderness, you do not need to be warm. Yes. Like if you're hunting in archery, you do not in any way, shape, or form need to be warm. Because mm-hmm. when you leave in the morning, yeah, you can be warm for the the horse ride out to where we're going. But as soon as you hop off that horse, take off every single layer you have and get ready to hike. Right. It's not – I see way too many people that we get there. And, I mean, I'm guilty of it myself mm-hmm. where I just leave a jacket on thinking, ah, it's, it's like 45. It'll be fine. And you hike. 300 yards and you're like all right everybody stop we gotta we gotta drop layers right but yeah that's the one thing that i could tell people out there is just you don't need to be warm yeah you just gotta be comfortable being chilly you don't want to be cold 
We just want to be comfortable being chilly. I promise you the temperature will rise by the middle of the day. Yes. Yes. And you can be chilly for a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, other than that though, I mean, I, I learned a lot this year. I will tell you, I really did. And a lot this year that I'm taking in with me to this upcoming bear season. Mm -hmm. I know stuff that had I known last year would have been a lot better, but now I at least have a grasp on what I'm doing and I know the different layering systems I need. Heck, I bought a pair or bought a pair for Christmas. My mom got me a pair of uh, the electric sock, those seven volt battery electric socks. Like Weston socks or something like that? I don't know what they are, but they like heat up. They mm-hmm. go up to like 145 degrees. And I was like, well, try them. That, those those will help. That's for sure. I'll keep those for the winter. But mm-hmm. when it comes to spring and every or not spring, uh, fall and everything, I mean, it'll just be nice being out there with just a pair of camo pants and a freaking one layer on top just mm-hmm. going out looking for help yeah so yeah one Wait. of uh i got thinking one of the things that always i was like when you said you got the sick of pants i don't know which model you have but like does it have knee pads mm-hmm. yeah those are the nice ones uh, those yeah knee pads save you your would, life out there you wouldn't believe me if i told you i ripped those pants within the first week i had them <laughs> oh, no. oh yeah i couldn't believe it i yeah i got a hole down by my uh down by my ankle and i was like oh well I guess they were made to be worn anyway. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, but, you gotta be careful. Just a patch that doesn't just keep ripping more and catching on things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so with uh, because you're going out here, spring bear season, right? Yep. So yeah, what? It'll be. What what are you, what are you gonna your big challenges gonna be for that that you that you foresee that you're kind of trying to plan for and mitigate now? So this bear season is gonna be completely new to me okay. and the the guide that. I'm going to be working with. We're both brand new to the bear season operation. So uh, we have a lot of learning to do before. That's why we're getting out there so early because our bear hunts don't start until the middle of May. And the first two hunts that we do are lodge hunts. So they're not actual wilderness hunts. They're we're hunting out of the the lodge because there's still snow on the ground up at the camp, but the camp's set up and ready to go. So We'll have camp set up probably by the second week of May. And then first week of June is when we'll go into the wilderness. And the biggest thing for us is like, I got to get used to the baiting patterns, making sure, cause we have the back there, we do grease fires as well for baiting. So you got to start the grease fires in the pits right next to the baits. Now explain um, grease fire for somebody who might not know what a grease fire is. So a grease fire is literally you're starting grease on fire and getting the smell of burning grease into the air. So, I mean, bear. Like, what kind I of grease this, are you using? Like, baking grease? Pretty much, yeah. I was just told, I mean, grease, yeah. Baking grease, cooking grease, whatever you mm-hmm. can get that'll really get a smell out. I was told at guide school, I mean, it, studies have been done that a bear can smell a dead carcass from 40 miles. Wow. So, like, downwind, mm-hmm. 40 miles, they can smell a dead carcass. So, if you're burning grease fires back there and there's bears in the area, they'll smell it and they'll come and you're just more or less trying to get them to the bait itself. The mm-hmm. smells just attracting them to the bait and then the bait will keep them around. Mm-hmm. So okay. we, uh, I was told most of our hunts we do in the evening, like we'll go out around like eh, noon one, set out the hunter and then the hunter will be out for the rest of the day. Cause the bears will hit the bait in the evening and in the mornings. They won't really, in the mornings is our opportunity to go bait. Okay. So, um, other than that, it's more or less just kind of getting into the swing of things and how bear camp runs. I know how to, I did learn how to set up camp, 
uh, when I was breaking it down pretty much. Cause when you're doing it in reverse, it's not hard to figure out how to do it back together the other way. Yeah. Unless you're but, dealing uh, with a car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, other than that, just, uh, I haven't been in that region for that season. Mm -hmm. So like, it goes I back to what you're talking about, learning the area, knowing what, where you're going to hunt and knowing, yeah. knowing where to, where to get to and how to get to and and how yeah. to get there. Yeah. And then I plan on like during the season, I'd like to, if we can tag out, get some scouting in for elk out there too, because elk will be moving in for calving and because they don't migrate in the cell way. I mean, right now we got 60 inches of snowpack right there. Mm. So yeah, there's, there's not a living animal. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're definitely moving out of there for sure. But they should be back in by spring. Hopefully the migration helps bring them back in. And then I'm hoping by... Uh, mid-june late june we'll start seeing them in the meadows up at the tops trying to just find herds see where they're walking around see if we have a decent amount coming in yeah because the wolves back there have done a number to the point where our elk populations are so low back there you hear a wolf howling, you're not going to find an elk there for the rest of the freaking month yeah now do you guys do wolf hunts we offer that so if you do a hunt with us you can get a wolf tag and we see a wolf you shoot a wolf yeah i mean but we don't do, we don't do necessarily straight up wolf hunts. No, it's kind of you know like an extra I mean? bonus. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean a wolf tag is thirty three bucks for a non resident. So a lot of people just they're like, heck, if I see one, might as well have a tag in pocket just right. in case. Yeah. So a lot of people do that with. Uh, you can get the predator tag. Okay. When you come out there, but I believe with whitetail, um, when if you have a non resident deer tag. You can shoot, I don't know if it's a bear, a lion, and a wolf, or just a bear and a lion. But I know if you have a non-resident deer tag, you can use that for other Oh, for other Multi-use tag. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Hmm, didn't yeah. know that. So Interesting. But yeah, other than that, for bear season, it's more or less, I mean, yeah, just kind of, like you said, trying to figure out my territory, kind of trying to learn what all goes into bear season, the different things. And I mean, bear hunters are a different breed than elk hunters everybody's different when they right. come out like they all have their different ways of doing it so mm -hmm. it'll be fun though it'll be a good season we'll hopefully have some success we got a lot of bears around where we're at in the, in the cellway so i mean last year i believe they they killed 13 bears somewhere around there so we should do pretty good yeah in my opinion nice nice so to kind of like wrap things up a little bit here what is uh what is like something you can kind of advise somebody if they were thinking about becoming a guide? I mean, you kind of covered some stuff earlier, but like if you could think of, you know, some key things that kind of like helped just like the, I can't remember the guy's name, but kind of helped you make the decision about to go guide, like kind of like being so fresh off of your first season, like what would you kind of offer to somebody to a little piece of advice to maybe if they're considering it, like how would you help them get over that hump? So the biggest piece of advice I can offer to anybody that's even considering it is what do you have to lose? Put that thought through your head and think about it for a second. Think, do you like, if you take a shot and go out and chase something that you want to do, are you leaving your family? Are you leaving your friends? Are you leaving? What all are you leaving behind? And are you comfortable with doing that? Cause if you're not comfortable with doing that, it's not, you can't really, you're out for eight months a year, man. Like you're, if you have a family, if you have kids, it's a hard, hard pill to swallow that you might not be able to do this line of work. 
But if you're like me and you are, I mean, younger age, even, I mean, I've seen people up to their forties start guiding, mm -hmm. like they just start because they want to do it. But if you have that fire in you and that drive to go do something in the outdoors that you feel you'll make a difference, go do it. Like, don't, don't talk about, I sat around talking about stuff for years, years. I would talk around about things to the point where my friends, when I told them I was going to guide school, they didn't believe me. <laughs> they didn't believe it. They were like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You've been talking about this my, for too long. Yeah, exactly. And then I put my first down payment down and I was like, I'm not joking. I'm doing it. They still didn't believe me when I put this first down payment on mm -hmm. and the second down payment came around and they were like, okay, you're serious. I was like, I'm not joking. I'm going out to do this. Yeah. And it just seems like not enough kids nowadays, like just in personally me, the people that I know, mm -hmm. like from the town that I've grown up in, it just seems like not enough people nowadays are reaching out and chasing their dreams. They're not, they don't think it's something that's plausible that they could do. Like an industry such as like hunting guiding. I, from the time I was young, I didn't, I, the West always seemed like a fleeting dream to me. It was just, it was out there. It was so close, but you couldn't touch it. That was the thing for me. And it got to the point where it's like, you just need somebody really to kick you in the ass and say, <laughs> get going, like figure it out. Because yeah. I was 21 and I'm just thinking like, what am I doing with my life? Because I, I, and not enough people, even at 21 years old, really ask themselves that question. Is like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. And if, if, you have the drive and you love the outdoors and wildlife, fishing, hunting, anything having to do with the outdoors, and you want to have experiences like no other, go try being a guy. Heck, you don't even have to be a hunting guy. Go be a photography tourist. Take people out on photography safaris in the middle. You can get hooked up with outfits and they do that. But it's just there's there's a gateway open for people that love the outdoors as much as I do and more. And a lot of people don't ever pursue the options that they have in that industry. They would rather just sit back and stay in their normal nine to five job, sitting behind a desk doing something when you could go out and live every day as if it was your last rather than like when I'm out there, I don't feel like I'm getting paid. I could care less if I get paid because mm -hmm. I'm out there living every single day to the fullest. And that's what I love about my job and my career. You, There's never a dull moment. Yeah, there's moments of sacrifice and hardness but it all comes around to better yourself in the long run like that's all you can that's all you can do is just keep getting better and better you'll never be to the point in this industry where you are the best in this industry and you know everything and that's what i like about it you continue to learn and learn and learn all the way up until the end yeah man so. like you're you're one of a kind for your age to have that mindset and to have that understanding with me, you know, you know, I'm 43, well, about to turn 43, and to hear that from somebody of your generation, it shows me like promise, like okay, we're not all dead, you know. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, that's <laughs> awesome. But so, so we're so for ways for people to find more motivating stuff that you got going on, because that was like a little motivation speech that you just gave <laughs> there. Um, where can they find you? Like internet, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, Instagram, you can find me Rob Taylor Guide. Uh, it'll just pop up Robert Taylor guide in the subway bitter wilderness. Um, on tick, I, I just made a TikTok. I didn't have a TikTok, <laughs> but I was like, you know what? I'll make one. So, uh, my TikTok's the same Rob Taylor guide. And then 
I mean, other than that, I don't really have too much social media. So if you want to connect with me uh, through, I mean, if you want to book a hunt with us, if you were, just want to connect with me to talk, I mean, I would just reach out through Instagram and I have the link to, if you're, if you're ever, anybody listening is ever interested in booking a hunt, uh, we have the, I have the link to Boulder Creek Outfitters in my Instagram as well. So yeah, or if I'll, you ever just I'll, link, I'll link the website to the, to the show notes as well. Sounds good. But yeah, other than that. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for coming on, man. I mean, it was, yeah. it was no awesome. It was good to, me. good to talk with you finally. Heck yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. It was a fun time. And this was my first podcast. So awesome, man. Glad to have you on.